0: Welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I talk with Sarah Rudin about her new book, The Face of Water, a translator on beauty and meaning in the Bible, published in February 2017 by Pantheon Books. Sarah Rudin was educated at the University of Michigan, Johns Hopkins, and Harvard, from which she graduated with a PhD in classical philology. She has translated six books of classical literature and contributed her Aeschylus Orestia to a collection of tragedy in English. Her translation of Augustine's Confessions was her first book-length work of sacred literature. She's also the author of a book of poetry, Other Places, and a book about the apostle Paul, Paul Among the People. Rudin is a visiting scholar at Brown University and lives in Hamden, Connecticut. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Sarah Rudin, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Before we get into your background as a classicist, I wonder if you begin by talking about your time in South Africa. As I've read your essays over the years, I even started to think you might be South African. Um, It has clearly played a formative influence in your thinking and writing and has also given you a unique vantage point as a writer and as a poet. Um, why were you there, and how would you say that your time there has influenced you?
1: Ah, Well, uh, it's a bit of a long story. Um, I um, started a Harvard um, Classics program, at, at um, a doctoral program at the age of 21. So that was a very bad decision. And um, I was more or less... Um, shot up in libraries for um, the whole program. And so um, when I here I was, you know, 30, 31 and um, got my degree and had really no experience um, as, except as an academic. That was my entire adult experience at, at that point. And um, the Harvard Department had a connection to the South African Department, or sorry, the Cape Town Department, in south africa at the university of cape town and um so um yeah this was at the moment when i was looking for a job so i interviewed by phone and i went out there sight unseen uh as a lecturer that's a junior professor at the university of cape town and i had the most astonishing time it was very difficult this was um nineteen ninety four so um I came just uh three months before the first multiracial elections in in um in may of of ninety four and I voted in those elections because i was a new per- um a new permanent resident in south Africa and through the quakers i was quite in, involved in um profits in development work in um, political causes. Um, It was a very, very exciting time in South Africa, though um, I would say also an extremely difficult time.
0: Wow. How much did you know going in about the political climate there? Were you fully aware or was it uh, like, had you read a lot about the cultural um, moment before you went or was that kind of an immersive experience?
1: I knew... Pretty much nothing. <laughs> I, had, I had read a couple of classic uh, anti-apartheid novels, um, and I had seen protest shacks um, on lawns in the Ivy League, and this was really just about, just about it. Um, so I, I had, you know, it, it just had not been my habit to think about public life much that, of course, when I went to South Africa, I had to think about it with a vengeance because it was literally on my doorstep. Um, there was a great deal of, of social upheaval at the time. And I stayed until 2000, 2005 with about eight an 18-month break uh, back in uh, back in the U.S., a oh, total so, 18 months. I stayed so back here.
0: more than a decade you were there.
1: Well, not in total, but say around 10 years Uh um, altogether. I mean, not not continuously.
0: Right, right. And so then did you complete your studies um, at Harvard or at Cape Town?
1: Oh, at Harvard, yes.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, So what led you to become a translator of the classics? Were you a poet first and then a translator, or the other way around? Or was there something... In particular, about the period that drew you to it in that regard,
1: well, I was a poet from about the age of one <laughs> according according to my parents um, <laughs> i I learned to speak very early, and I liked rhythm and rhyme a great deal, so they thought i was I would just bounce off the walls and I would hear something and I would learn it immediately, and then I would start variations on it and um uh, I just always seem to to like using language in that in that way. so i always I've always thought of myself primarily as as a poet. I had um extremely difficult adolescence and you know <laughs> informed opinion about me at that age um, you know was was uncertain as to you know whether I would be able to do anything. Um, you know was was were gonna to have to be institutionalized I was in such bad shape um, but French um, that I discovered which I discovered at the age of 14 just the ordinary junior high French class um, was a great revelation for me because language was something I could do uh, I could do on my own get my mind around it very efficiently and um, really perform in it academically so um, ancient languages were sort of no-brainer for me. Uh, I could imagine myself doing this all my life, um, working in a technical capacity, not having to deal with, with other people with those stresses. Um, so yeah, I got, I got through the University of, of Michigan in, in three years with a classics degree and um, marched off to Harvard very bad idea, you know, to make a a career commitment, um, when you're so immature. And at Harvard, I, I really, well, you know, i worked very hard, probably too hard, um, and, um, had a breakdown and decided that what I really wanted to do was, was right. So they were, my teachers were were wringing their hands; they didn't know what to do with me. I said, "Well, yeah, you know, you seem to be able to write pretty well, but this happens to be a classics department," uh, and I, I, uh, it was a great opportunity for me to go to the University of Cape Town because they were starting a creative writing program at the time. Jam Coutinho was there, and there was a lot of interest in. Um, integrating um, black African and white African writing you you had all these these um, very eminent anti-apartheid writers such as such as Katia. and um, then there were emerging black writers too at the time so um, the the creative writing program didn't really get started in time for me to participate much uh,
0: so-
1: but that was that was really the main reason I was there
0: Okay. So, um, when did you, uh, actually I should back up and say, did, was your first exposure to the classical languages in, um, high school, like learning Latin, as many kind of classical curriculums do, or did you, when, when were you in first introduced to those languages?
1: Oh, well, um, I, I started learning them, um, during high school. Um, I was 16 and, the high school didn't offer Latin because um, the Latin teacher had been reassigned to teaching typing
2: mm-hmm.
1: a number of years before. So uh, there was there was Latin offered at the university, though. So that's where my my father taught. So all I had to do was was hike across town after school to to Latin class, and that was. Wonderful! I I enjoyed that so very much. The two professors there at the time were experts in spoken Latin, um, and there's a spoken Latin movement that's that is worldwide and and uh, quite vital. Though of course it's not uh, not very populous, but but um, there there are a number of a certain number of people who are really passionate about speaking Latin and. Both professors, both classics professors, at Bowling Green State University, were so. Um, I was excited about them. They were excited about me, and um, this was this was kind of a dream come true for me because uh, uh, my my world was one of words, and and words just sort of inhabited me, and I. Really, um, I just loved poetic language, and, and in Latin, of course, and, mm-hmm. you know, in other languages, uh, even prose is poetic. The sound is very, very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, was your first published translation the Satyricon, or had you done other work before that?
1: Well, I had done some other work, but, but hadn't published a book. Okay. The Satyricon is the first book. Okay. Uh so I worked on um Virgil's Eclogues. Uh these are bucolic poems. The the first um uh works that, that Virgil published. So that was my undergraduate thesis and it won a prize. <laughs> very very exciting. Uh and the Satyricon was my dissertation uh my dissertation book. So I was writing writing about that. And then uh, first published a a, a book, a, a translation of, of the Satyricon as a book.
2: That right. Was well, a f- before
1: a f- that, oh, sorry, sorry. Before that, um, I had published a book of poetry in South Africa. Um, and I won um, the Central News Agency Literary Award for, for that.
0: And was that part of uh, the creative writing program? Is that when you focused? Uh, on on the on the writing of those poems when you were there
1: i I guess so, yeah, I only taught a couple of adult education courses in the creative writing program, but mm-hmm. uh I was writing like mad
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I was thinking of myself really as a South African poet, you know I was trying to fit into um, the South African culture and South African ideas
2: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
1: the the poetry book, it's called Other Places. It It is about, well, predominantly about um, uh, the place of Christianity in, a, in an extremely troubled society.
0: What was the name of uh, that collection?
1: Other Places.
0: Other Places. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, what I was going to say about the satiricon is that, you know, the, I, I backed into an awareness of this when I um, read... Uh, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby because the criticism made some comparisons or I guess Fitzgerald himself um made some connection uh to the Ciceron and I I wasn't aware of it previously and um so it's one of these things where a great work of literature gets mentioned in another great work of literature and then you go trying to find the reference to uh you know to establish an a connection or interpretation so um um uh, That was, I remember that very vividly in my undergraduate years. Um, So um, just to skip over, uh, you you wrote a number of, uh, 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 translated a number of works, uh, which unfortunately we can't uh, talk that much about here. But um, I want to skip over to uh, uh, your work on uh, the Apostle Paul, because it has some connection to the new book, and in fact, in the new book, "Face of the Face of Water," uh, you write, "Don't get me started on the Apostle Paul." And I'd like to avoid your own caution here and ask, uh, wh- <laughs> why does the Apostle Paul get such a bad rap?
1: Well, I think he's um, he's in the position of a good parent. Um or uh, say um, you know think of a fairly dysfunctional household, and um one parent is really trying um and one parent is you know fighting a good fight um in a an unfavorable environment um that's the parent of um at which the children will tend to direct their anger because he was. Or she was unable to remake the world, and wasn't an unable to, you know, protect the children to the degree that they thought um, was necessary. Probably was in fact necessary. Mm. Um, and so, um, I think you got to you got to think of Paul in context in, in the ancient world. Um, he's very much the good parent. He he is solidly against the major brutalities of pagan life. You know, he's against pederasty. Um, he is, um, against the idea that slaves are subhuman, that they are a, uh, walking, that they are walking, talking machines. Um, and, um, you know, that any needs they have, that any human needs they have are, are, are simply inconveniences. Um, and, um, you know, he he does not seem to be a person who is very friendly toward toward you know all the various violence of, of of, of pagan society, um, so, um, he 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 doesn't though get the get the credit for this, you know, is a good parent in a dysfunctional household doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't get the can can can't do anything right, um, so I I, I really deeply believe that um, to a certain extent of the um, liberal culture, the human rights culture that we enjoy today is thanks to him Hmm. because he, he um, brought over um, some very humane elements from Hebrew culture and, um, you know, some uh, really positive ideas from, from uh, Jewish thinking. And, um, grafted grafted them on in onto Europe. I'm really sure that, that he was the key person to do to do that. Um mm-hmm. uh, but you know that that kind that kind of no no good deed goes unpunished and that you know that kind of heroism will come back and, and bite you in the fanny. Uh because you know women who I think in the long run um owe their their liberation to Paul, probably more than any other single person um, are annoyed, you know, that, that he was not, he wasn't the perfect feminist.
0: Right. But he he was,
2: he was,
1: yeah, he was, he was a feminist to a, a, you know, very great degree, uh, a heroic feminist for his, his time, you know, and for the places where, where he was, where he was active. But, you know, he, he certainly isn't a feminist up to our standards. So rather than give, Credit, we
0: blame him. Well, I think we see glimpses of this in, like, in Galatians, for instance, where he says, "In Christ, there is no male nor female, uh, nor slave nor free, uh, nor Jew nor Gentile." It's, uh, and um, but I think what what's so uh, so you you see those you know things that actually transfer into English fairly well. But I think what's so um, helpful and astonishing about your book is the way you bring comparative literature to bear on the text of Paul's letters um, to actually illuminate cases where, where the, the text itself isn't, uh, isn't determinative of the proper, like a lot of his guidance, for instance, uh, about uh, you know, women, women wearing a veil in church. Um, Here's an example where you really uh, have, you bring some other uh, uh, comparisons of literature at the time to actually show. um, Actually, maybe I should have you explain what, what is going on there. But I, as, as I was thinking back on that book, I was really mindful of the problem of sola scriptura in this sense, this notion of reading scripture on its own without any aid or authority, and that reading Paul in isolation or indeed reading him not among the people you know, to uh, to riff on the title of your book can make him seem backward and regressive rather than radically transformed by his encounter with Christ. Um, so, can you can you just uh, elaborate on the the veil uh, imagery? Because I think it's very helpful to see that context, which drops out from the actual text.
1: Right. Yeah. So um, I'm talking about the veils, the veils passage in First Corinthians, and uh, it is a fairly snarky passage. Um, you know, here's uh, Hector and scolding women. Uh, you know, there has been obviously some kind of controversy about the wearing of veils. And you do have to go back, uh, I think, first of all, to, to law and custom and um those say that um, women and um older girls in um uh the middle well that's a that's a iffy term, but uh you know let's say the the bourgeois and and aristocratic classes um in among the Greeks and Romans they had to wear veils um uh, and the veil was the sign of their Status and their protection so you put on a veil and um, you could go out in public you could uh, participate to a certain degree and um, you could the the veil was analogous to um, the the slaves who accompanied you Um, nobody could touch you (laughs) if you were in that veil Um, and if you had your if you had your little entourage there would be hell to pay You know, if anybody bothered you, whereas uh, freed women and slave women, it's unclear and was probably different in different places, but it it looks as if they weren't even permitted to wear the veil. That would be sort of um, disguise for them. It would be illegitimate uh, because it would say it would give them in public a status that that they didn't have. But to be bareheaded meant. That um, you know, any man could harass you, could grab you, uh, could could make your life miserable uh, because you didn't you didn't have that special special symbol of authority, and that's how that's how um, Paul puts it. You know, the, the veil is about um, authority. Um, so he really seems to me that what he seems to me to be maybe getting at in this in this passage is that um he wants every woman within the assembly to be wearing a veil because he doesn't want any nonsense he -hmm. doesn't want disruptions Mm -hmm. he doesn't want he doesn't want women bothered he doesn't want a sexual undertone or overtone you know to this gathering which is already a bit edgy because you know women and women and men who are you know, all ages and classes and, and they're not related. They're gathering, they're gathering here to worship, to gather indoors. Um, not, not outdoors. And that was the more common pagan way to worship. Um, you know, it is, um, you know, subject, uh, a subject of sneers of, of rumors. And pagans are saying, well, oh, what are they, what are they doing? There? What are they doing there? Of course, there were horrible rumors about incest because, um, of believers addressing each other as brother and sister um hmm. cannibalism of mm-hmm. course yeah. <laughs> because of because of uh you know uh the the words of, of the, the eucharist right uh, you know eating body drinking blood um
0: right that's in celsus i think uh observing uh, about uh observing the early christians and kind of being bewildered by this language
1: Right, yeah. So it was probably already. Uh, um, it looked iffy from the outside. Mm-hmm. It's the early, probably even the very early Christian, Christian assembly uh, was starting was looking rather rather iffy. Um, so yeah, I I kind of read that that Paul is creating a safe space for women, and he says um, you know quite clearly wear the veil when you speak. That mm-hmm. is when you when you. you uh you speak in assembly, um, you prophesy, you you say what you're inspired to say. Um, it's clear from those verses that he's fine with women doing that, with women speaking. Mm-hmm. Um and other verses that seem to say no, women can't speak are interpret interpolations. Uh you know, they come from a later pseudo pseudo Pauline source. Anyway, um what i what I picture, and um there are some rather hilarious um, uh works of greco Roman literature that that back this up uh he what what Paul pictures is that the woman is speaking, she's got her face covered, so it doesn't matter uh what age she is, um how attractive she is uh it doesn't matter what class she belongs to, whether she's got you know expensive jewelry. Um hanging from her ears and her and her neck uh she's she's got her whole upper body covered um so it's her words that are important
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um they ideally i think in paul's head, nobody can tell whether she uh, say the wife of a magistrate so that um, you're gonna have the crap beaten out of your you if you yeah. insult her. Uh-huh. Or whether she's, or whether she's an ordinary slave girl, um, who enjoys no such protection. He wants, he wants women to be the same.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. And,
1: and to be on a footing with men in speaking in the assembly.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really uh, that chapter in particular. You know, struck struck me as being just so illuminating. And for that reason, and for many others, I recommend Paul among the people uh, to. Um, to friends and anyone interested in looking at the way Paul has been received and perhaps misinterpreted. But let's uh, let's turn to your new book, The Face of Water, uh, where you focus on uh, seven passages in the Hebrew Bible and seven passages in the New Testament, often pairing them side by side as a way of teasing out the difficulties of rendering the Hebrew or the Greek into English. Um, how did you decide on those 14 passages and I'm curious, was there a lot left on the cutting room floor? And which one was the hardest to write about?
1: Oh goodness, there was so much left on the on the cutting room floor. I had um yeah, I, I made so many I wouldn't say they were false starch because I learned a lot, but um I did a great deal of research that doesn't, you know, go directly into this this book. I looked at, at a, a number of passages besides these um i thought of uh two things I, I thought of um uh discussing the the major passages the most important ones that is you know what what would people be most curious about um uh within the bible and um uh, but i also uh i also chose um with a with a view to my own interests I, ch- I chose passages that, that spoke to me more um, so among the prophets for example you can go in many directions uh, because that those works aren't, aren't so well known So, I, I chose Ezekiel's um, dry bones passage um, and I chose it for it it isn't a really important passage about resurrection um, it was inspirational to New Testament writers. Very, very certainly, uh, it was uh, very important for for Jewish history. Uh, but you know, the reason that I chose it was that um, a young friend of mine in in South Africa, uh, who was uh, an American, and uh, actually ended up staying in South Africa. Uh, he's a He's an editor and a great promoter of of African literature now. Anyway, he at the time was really young. He was about 22 and he had, he was going, he was just extremely excited. Uh, about the new South Africa. He was going around meeting people and, you know, he, he told me once that he had, he had touched, he had touched Mandela and he had, you know, and another time he was very excited because he had, he had you know shaken Bishop Tutu's hand. Uh, uh, anyway, I think it was after he had shaken Bishop Tutu's hand that, um, you know, he was in my kitchen and he was dancing and singing ezekiel connect them dry bones ezekiel connect them dry bones ezekiel connect them dry bones now hear the word of the lord and of course you you've named bones one after another so yeah i i um chose that uh passage you know because uh i remembered my friend and i, I really appreciate because of him I appreciate that as a celebratory passage uh passage about about new life about hope about uh you know if you will the arc of history bending toward bending toward justice
0: yes mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the uh i'm just looking for the passage uh and uh one just verse eleven um and he said to me, mortal man, the bones you see here are the whole house of Israel. And here in your hearing, they are saying, our bones are dried out and our hope has perished. We are hacked away from ourselves. Um, which is um, a striking way of putting it. Um, and you compare well, that to the King James. and um, Yeah, uh,
1: that's a... A really difficult um bit to translate. Um and I think I think I was more literal there mm-hmm. than the King James is, hacked away from ourselves. And um gosh when you think when you think about Africa, that that image really uh it floor, it floors me. Yeah. Um <sighs> there's There's so many parallels that I see between um the human rights situation of of Africa and of the ancient world um you know both are um, environments in which you know bones hacked away from themselves are a reality.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This
1: is not a metaphor right you know people people are <clears throat> slaughtered and their bones are. Um, or, um, you know, they are, they are mutilated,
2: um,
1: and, um, just left that way, you know, corpses, corpses in the grass Mm -hmm. or, or people who will, who will live the rest of their lives with, you know, terrible mutilations and no, no hope of earthly justice.
0: Right. On the other hand, you talk about, um, very effectively I thought about the tiny lamb. Can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to emphasize there?
1: Oh yes. Okay, the revelations passage, yeah?
0: Oh yes, because this is what you you paired this with um right, isn't that the pairing? Um maybe I've got it. Yeah, Ezekiel is paired with uh revelation in uh um where you pair them together in your analysis. Um and then um um that was, right. uh, it was interesting mm-hmm.
1: yes yeah. um there's there's this um curious word um, arneon um in um and it's it's the only word used for lamb uh throughout throughout revelations and it's really not clear you know what the you know local influence or um the 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 dialect influence might have been or, or the influence of, of the particular period in which in which revelation was written and we, we can't date it very very accurately but all through revelation you get only um not lamb but little lamb a cute little lamb lamblet
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and um you know that that word is uh rare in the rest of in the rest of the new testament and I think non-existent in the um, Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew Bible. I don't think you have a single instance of of Arneon. I would have to check that though. Anyway, it's very striking. You only have the little lamb in um, Revelation, and you have the special, very special imagery of the lamb. The lamb sits um, on a on a throne. So you have it's like a like a little you know Maltese Maltese dog, um, you know in an executive power chair. Um, it's it is it is something something like that. So Thailand, you know, big throne surrounded by celestial worshipers
2: hmm.
1: and it's it's a pet,
2: hmm.
1: and. You know, uh, one thing that makes you can go at this from a lot, a lot of angles. One thing that makes it, it really interesting is that um, the the Passover lamb, the lamb that you're going to kill and eat, uh, is is kept as a pet in your house. Um, this is uh, this is the um, Jewish prescription. Um, you don't just, you know, go to the. Um, um, you know, go to the marketplace place and buy uh prepared, you know, roast lamb in a shell. Uh this this lamb is is um a creature who has lived in your house for a little while and you know your children have fussed over it and played with it and and then you slaughter it and you eat it. So uh that to me was really striking. You know, for the the Passover Ritual. The proper thing to do is, is you make you make a pet out of this animal, and then you then you then you kill it and then you eat it. So the sacrifice, the imagery of sacrifice, is something very very immediate uh, to people with a Jewish background um, in the ancient in the ancient world. So um, the sight of this you know little animal on the throne is, I think especially as as um heightened by the special language used about that uh this image is really gut wrenching
0: right and the the connection here is with uh it's in the context of talking about the martyrs which is also how it ties to the uh the violence that you've mentioned about the dry bones um is that right
1: yeah yeah the, the martyrs are they're wearing this um Posh, you know, shining white, uh, beautiful clothing. That's very technically that that clothing is hard to produce. Uh, you know, bleaching is a difficult, laborious process in the ancient in the ancient world. Um, wool is kind of gray or kind of brown um, nor- normally, uh, and then linen. You you can have linen, but you still have to uh, bleach it. You have to to uh, render it. Shining, shining white, it's pure, uh, but the martyrs um, that you see um, in in revelation celebrating celebrating in in heaven in this go- in these gorgeous robes um, you know uh, had bloody deaths and dirty deaths you know were um, hacked up and dragged around uh, the arena some of some of them uh, they were they were killed for they were killed for entertainment mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the contrast of of those robes, uh, in their case, I think is, uh, quite, um, intense, emotionally intense.
0: Yeah. Well, before we move on to another example, um, one of the, one of your passages, um, uh, later in the book actually struck me as touching on really what you're, uh, what you're doing throughout the book. And, you, um, uh, you, you talk a little bit about the various translations that are available, even the venerable King James. And, you know, when confronted with this, uh, you say, um, uh, confronted with this long-flowing regalia-like but quite holy tradition of what the Bible says, a translator deeply concerned with the exact meanings and the effects of the original texts has a lot of extra explaining to do. I have to tell people that some of what they've heard or learned and what in some cases they're deeply attached to isn't the case. Not only are they used to translations that are far precise, but in some places the Bible's actual authors probably gave no basis whatsoever for the standing English translations, precise or not. Can you elaborate a little bit on that point and how it applies to what you're doing throughout the book?
1: um yes um you have um uh you have a lot of instances of of, of you know strict inaccuracy in, in the bible um and that really um uh that that goes way way back and is sanctioned from from way way back uh and the, the Masoretes, for example, who are um, a medieval group of, of, of learned Jews who did a very great deal to, to enshrine and preserve the, the Jewish Bible, um, have a principle called um, so, um And it means that what is, um, uh, there's one thing written and there's another thing read. So uh, the the thing that is written in um, the Hebrew, and they lovingly you know preserve every letter of it, um, is uh, would be for for example Yahweh, um, God's the name of God or one of the names of God, but you you're not supposed to read you're not supposed to pronounce, pronounce that word out loud, um, so um, you're supposed to say Adonai or or Lord. Uh, You know, literally, literally my Lord. And um, so that is, that is indicated in the text. Um, You know, you have a, a, you know, a a special um, indication written, written into the the Hebrew text that um, in the margins that, that, um, no, you don't, you don't actually say the word that's in the Bible. You say another word that we want you to say. Uh, so that's that's a very uh, respectful and circumspect way of of um, changing that, changing the text. Um, right. But... And, the,
0: <clears throat> and the specific example you give in that uh, in this context, right after the passage I read, um, you're talking about First Corinthians thirteen three, where Paul very likely didn't write about his willingness to give my body to be burned, which is a traditional way of translating that. When really it's give up my body so that I can boast about it um,
1: yeah now gonna... that's a that's a question of textual corruption that one so oh, okay. you know here here's another kind of inaccuracy um that that comes into play um, the the translators are working with a corrupt text um and so the Greek uh very very likely um talked about boasting rather than burning. Um, and um, this is a philological matter. So the the real best um, text, the most likely text, is only, you know, um, likely to be emerging in the, you know, um, Eighteenth, nineteenth century, maybe even the twentieth century. That's when we actually know because we have we can look at the full ma- range of of manuscripts and do all the, you know, uh, uh, scientific technical work um, that's necessary um, to figure out yeah what this did probably say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know the translation tradition you know goes goes way way back. It's it's. Uh, just goes back to the Dark Ages, uh, you know, when people were were um, you know starting to to come up with vernacular uh, translations, say in Old English. Um, so, uh, and then you get this great flowering you know, of biblical translation around the the Renaissance. So, all of this translation is done on the basis of really crummy, corrupt, um, late manuscripts. So the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, problems get embedded. So that's, a, that's another source of inaccuracy.
0: Right. Well, let's take a look at a, an example, uh, before we have to wind down our time together. Um, that's where the language is very familiar. It's been built into liturgies. Um, and you know, it's, uh, something even school children memorize. It's the 23rd Psalm. Um, I, how about if I read the uh, King James Version, and then maybe you could read uh, your own translation, and we can uh, pause to consider some of the choices that you made. Um, so this is the King James Version of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my... Uh, sh- oh, yes?
1: Oh, sorry. Can you give me a, a page number there? Uh, 136.
0: 136.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I did have this marked.
0: Okay. That's Okay. Okay. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. Okay. So take us through Um, this.
1: All right. Um, Do you want to hear my um, speculative translation?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. The Lord is the one pasturing me. I will never go without. He will always invite me to stretch out in pastures full of green shoots. He will not fail to guide me to a place of rest where the water is at peace. He will bring my life back to me. He will lead me along wagon tracks of fair dealing. He would not be who he is if he did otherwise. I tell you, Though I have cause to walk through the valley of deadly darkness, there is nothing fearsome there, nothing for me to fear. Because of you, you there with me, your weapon and your crook, I see them and I know I am safe. You arrange a feast on a table where I sit, though my enemies loom on the other side. You refresh my head by bathing it in oil. You fill my cup again and again. Certainly goodness and unfailing mercy will chase after me everywhere I go as long as I exist and I will live in the Lord's house through all my length of days.
0: That's wonderful. I love it. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Um, so can you, can you talk about some choices, uh, that you had to make there? Um, um, the, uh, the one one that stands out to me uh, not just the first verse but in the third verse, the wagon tracks of fair dealing um, i just I love that um, you know t- to imagine the ruts uh, that are ground in over um, uh, you know use and weather and you know uh, the variation of wet and dry all those things kind of come to mind um, uh, when I read that but but um Anyway, what are some points uh in this uh translation that stand out to you as being um difficult or interesting?
1: Okay. Well, um, you know, uh just to start out in the in the first verse, you know, uh, I think it's a lot more accurate to say, the Lord is the one pasturing me. Um because um it's uh we? the one pasturing me. Um <laughs> That's how they said shepherd. They used participles um, for most of you know ordinary occupations. You know, you're not say a tailor. You're the, the sewing one for just for example, um, and you're not a shepherd. You're the one you know pasturing pasturing the sheep. Um, so this is how they. And it's a very elemental way way of, of of you know describing the the distribution of of, of tasks. So you know this. Um, first part, at least, of, of the 23rd Psalm is from the the view of the sheep. And the sheep, um, you know, doesn't know anything about human society. He doesn't know that, you know, this guy is hired to be the shepherd, you know, and has this, this um, calling. Uh, and that, you know, this is sort of a, this is a matter of human administration of resources. No, he knows, the sheep knows the one who's pasturing him um and um, so I thought that was really important to to emphasize and um then in in verse two um it's the hipphi uh that's the, a, a verb form I mean it's a causative verb form, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you you force someone to do something it's you you cause someone to do to do something. So you would invite somebody to dinner, for example, and that would be you use a fill for that. Uh, so uh, you, you don't, you know, make the, the sheep lie down. The sheep wants to stretch out, lie down comfortably. So, so the the, um, the shepherd, uh, the one pasturing, invites them to stretch out. And it's not uh, just just uh, green pastures. This image of green shoots. So you gotta uh, go. I think in, in, in translating Hebrew, you have to just go very carefully through the lexicon and the um, you know, other places in the Bible where a certain word is used and, and um, tease out the imagery because the imagery is really precise where, say, livelihood is concerned. Where they're talking about the natural environment, you know, they got to know exactly, you know, what kind of water course is this? You know, will it be here next month? So, is it a, as a wadi? You know, is 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 it a, a dry riverbed, or is it a river that flows all year? Or, or and, and what's the kind of vegetation? Is it green shoots? Is this, is this spring vegetation? Or is it late vegetation? And they they've got all this stuff marked. In their vocabulary, and I think it's necessary to um, deal with it both precisely and poetically.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's 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 really wonderful. I've uh, uh, I've shared this with a number of people, and they're they're very struck by it too. Um, um, uh, so I, I really wish we had more time to explore some of the other. Um, examples that you go over um, in your book, I am—it's—it's it's impressive to watch how effortlessly you move through these things and render them so well for a general audience. I mean, I know I've certainly benefited from your observations in this book, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, again, it—it—it it, it brings to mind that uh, you know that most commentaries seem inadequate to the task. Uh, since they're often re- referring to a much smaller orbit of usage and context, whereas you draw on a very wide uh, range of comparative literature. Um, you know, is this, you know, what other helps can um, can people have, in addition to study Bibles, you know, to be able to see some of these things that they're missing in the original? Is there anything uh Obviously, your book is a place to start. But do you have any other recommendations for how, short of learning the uh, the original languages, is there? Are there helps that you found that um, are good for students of the Bible?
2: Oh
1: gosh, you know it, it is really tough to to make recommendations. Um, I, I do think that you know if people um, if people have any time, you know, that they could devote to a, a class in in Hebrew or in in Greek, um, you know, they should they should do that. Because the um uh the reference literature is um, really difficult to handle if you don't have um the alphabet, the grammar, the basics, um, you know, the the words will simply they're not presented to you in any, in any way you can make, you can make sense of. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, even I, it, I, I, I just, oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, it's,
0: it's even difficult to follow an interlinear uh, edition of the Bible. Um, uh, you know, I, the new Testament is often set up to have the Greek word order, you know, mimicked in English. Um, but even some of those are hard to follow without knowing um, the, the, the underlying structure.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the gold standard is, um, academic classes mm-hmm. in, 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 these languages. And, uh, but I, you know, I do understand that, um, many, many people do, just do not have, have time. And, you know, that's, um, um, that's no reflection on the seriousness of their interest in, in the Bible. And so I, I have provided, a, a, you know, this a very inferior <laughs> introduction to hmm. to these languages, you know, within uh, within two covers. I mean, hmm. within uh, within a single book.
0: Yes, it's excellent. Um, well, that's why I'm heartily recommending The Face of the Water as much as I have been recommending Paul Among the People. You know, few books have really helped me to unsettle some assumptions that I had about a biblical author in the case of Paul or language in general that we all take for granted in our English, uh, translations. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, uh, and our traditional question. You're very welcome. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, your, our traditional question at the close of each program is what are you working on now?
1: I am working on a new translation of the gospels.
0: Oh, okay. And how, when will that be published?
1: Well, it's it's not clear. It uh, um, depends on when I finish it. I've, okay. I've got two years, uh, so I hope to, I hope to finish sooner because the gospels, of course, are are not a lengthy work. Um, so it it might be out in two and a half years.
0: Oh, okay, that's great. Um, uh, it's there's a there's a venerable list of single author translations of the Bible or the gospels. And, um, are you, I'm wondering, are you, uh, have any of those previous translations influenced your own approach or are you studiously avoiding them?
1: (laughs) I'm studiously avoiding them. You're studiously avoiding
0: them. Excellent. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, it is, it is already so, so easy to, to read over things in in an ancient language. Mm -hmm. Um, particularly in important famous passages and you know the 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 words are part of you. You know, you you learned them so young. Um you learned an English translation. And, you know, one thing that I, I find, you know, particularly mortifying about the the uh, my my handling of the twenty third Psalm is that I, I didn't make an essential correction and that's in the final verse of this the song, um I will I will live in the Lord's house through all my length of days. That's what I. That's how I did it. That you know, as uh, a Hebrew instructor of mine pointed out to me afterwards. Uh, yes, that is the, the default traditional translation, but it's not what it means. Um, the the verb is return to um, the Lord's house, hmm. and whether that. Hebrew is corrupt, or what, or what that actually means about returning to the the um, Lord's house? If the Hebrew is, is genuine, I, I I do not know, but it's it's very clear that in our standard Hebrew Hebrew text, it means the verb is is return. It is not dwell. They look the verbs look really similar, and I read straight over it. Um, yeah. So that's the that's the kind of thing that could happen.
0: In the forthcoming translation of the gospels, will there be commentary also or, or just the translation and an introduction?
1: Oh yes. Uh, uh quite a few quite a few footnotes, but not, you know, heavy lengthy academic footnotes. Um more um just guides to what, what's particularly interesting um in in a particular verse.
0: Right. All right, One thing I appreciate so much about Robert Alter's translation of the uh, Books of Moses is, you know, his attention in the commentary to um, some of the literary allusions or uh, the uh, word choices, puns, uh, you know, uh, sounds, the way things sound in the original, uh, that really make that text uh, a lot more alive in the in the English. Um, so I'm looking forward to your. Uh, forthcoming translation um, so thank
2: you yes thank um, you so
0: much all right well thank you for the, your time today and take care that concludes my conversation with Sarah Rudin about her new book The Face of Water a translator on beauty and meaning in the Bible published in February 2017 by Pantheon Books please join us again for another episode of New Books in Biblical Studies.